0: Hi, this is Paul, and this is Rough Draft for Sunday, where I run through my current version of my Sunday sermon. Now, when Jesus saw the crowds, he went up onto the mountainside and sat down. His disciples came to him, and he began to teach them. He said, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad, because great is your reward in heaven, for in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. You are the salt of the earth, but if the salt loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled underfoot. You are the light of the world. A town built on a hill cannot be hidden. Neither do people put a light, put a lamp, light a lamp and put it under a bowl. Instead, they put it on its stand and it gives light to everyone in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. Is this the man John the Baptist was looking for? John the Baptist was apocalyptic John Brown. He was expecting and, in fact, probably thinking to welcome a civil war with angels fighting on one side and Roman legions on the other. God would reach out, reach out of the sky to reward, to reward the rigorous and burn up the chaff of the religious leadership and scare the wobbly straight or into the furnaces of the unjust. That's what John was looking for. And then Jesus comes along. Now, you would think after 2,000 years, we'd have this sermon figured out. This is Craig Bloomberg in his commentary. Perhaps no other religious discourse in the history of humanity has attracted the attention which has been devoted to the Sermon on the Mount. Philosophers and activists from many non-Christian perspectives who have refused to worship Jesus nevertheless have admired his ethic. In the 20th century, Mahatma Gandhi was the sermon's most famous non-Christian devotee. The literature on the sermon is vast. One recent survey has identified 36 different interpretations. Only eight of the most significant influential approaches can be listed here. And then he goes goes on to list them. So you would imagine that everybody would say, Oh yeah, the Sermon on the Mount. Oh yeah, Jesus, what a wonderful moral teacher. I remember John Stewart on The Daily Show once making exactly the opposite thing. He said, you know, have you read this guy? Well, in the 1980s, Virginia Stem Owens, who was a regular contributor to the Reform Journal and taught at Texas A&M, decided to hand out the Sermon on the Mount to a, a class of students to get their critique of it. And what they gave back to her shocked her. Actually, it was basically reading the sermon through some fresh eyes. Why were these students, A, so angry at what they read, and B, so blithe in their dismissal of it? My own introduction to the Sermon on the Mount as a child in Sunday school had been accompanied by pastel poster illustrations of Jesus sitting like a patient Mr. Rogers on a green hillside surrounded by eager pink children. It had never occurred to me to be either angry or to turn away from such a scene. As I read on, the answer to the first part of my question became clear. To wit, the stuff the church has preached is extremely strict and allowed for almost no fun without thinking it is a sin or not. I do not like the essay Sermon on the Mount. It was hard to read and make me feel like I had to be perfect and no one is. The thing asked the thing asked in this sermon are absurd. To look at a woman as adultery? That is the most extreme, stupid, unhuman statement I have ever heard. At this point, I began to be encouraged. There was something something exquisitely innocent about not realizing you shouldn't call Jesus stupid. This was exactly this was not exactly intellectual agnosticism talking here. Usually, the perceived foe of the faith. It was just down home hedonism. It was Herod watching Salome dance. It was the disciples asking, who then can be saved when Jesus deflated their dreams of wealth with the needle's eye? This was the real thing, a pristine response to the gospel, unfiltered through two millennia culture, unfiltered through a two millennia cultural haze. Now, this last week, uh, my friend John Verveke released a video where he's going through um, his. Uh, his take on Socrates, and one of the things that he noted, which is not original to him, you'll find many who have analyzed Socrates and the Socratic method, use the word aporia. Um, it's probably not a terribly common word. The definition that he gives here is, is a little bit technical. Aporia, a philosophical puzzle or seemingly insoluble impasse in an inquiry often arising as a result of equally plausible yet inconsistent premises. In other words, a paradox. It can also denote the state of being perplexed. And if you've ever read Socrates and his dialogues, he'll ask people questions about justice and people will act like they know what justice is. And then he'll ask them another question and suddenly they're not quite sure they know what justice is. And he'll just keep asking them questions until they get to the point where they're not quite sure they know what anything is. It's it's an unsettling, disorienting, dissonance-creating rhetorical method to break the audience's preconception in order to ready them for a new way to think and to be. I think that these Beatitudes are aporia that Jesus is using for his listeners. Now, The Beatitudes sound so lovely because we're listening to them through two millennia of religious haze in some ways. Christians often read them for their shocking beauty, and they are shockingly beautiful. The haze of two millennia has obscured the shocking strangeness of this text, and I think partly because Christians are often unfamiliar with many passages in the Old Testament. Anyone familiar with the genre would feel the aporia Jesus is producing in his audience. You can find Beatitudes quite often in the Psalms. Psalm 1, Psalm 32, Psalm 32, Psalm 33, Psalm 40, Psalm 41, Psalm 65, Psalm 94, Psalm 112, Psalm 128, and Proverbs 28, and you can find a few more. They're they're very common in the Psalms, and um, they're really quite nice and unsurprising. Blessed is he whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. Blessed is the nation whose God is the Lord, the people whom he has chosen as his heritage. Blessed is he who considers the poor, the Lord delivers him in the day of trouble. Blessed is the man... Whom thou dost chasten, O Lord, whom thou dost teach out of thy law. Praise the Lord. Blessed is the man who fears the Lord. This is all just general piety and sort of karmic reward. Do good things, good good things happen. Be nice to God and God will be nice to you. Now, there's this other part of the Bible called the Apocrypha that Some of you think of when you think about those sometimes slightly fatter Catholic Bibles, and you'll find a good number of Beatitudes there, and and they basically track the same way. Blessed is the man who does not blunder with his lips and need not suffer grief for sin. Blessed is he whose heart does not condemn him and who has not given up his hope. Blessed is the man who meditates on wisdom and and who reasons intelligently. Blessed is the rich man who is found blameless, who does not go after gold. Blessed is the soul of the man who fears the Lord. To whom does he look and who is his support? Blessed is he who concerns himself with these things, who lays them to heart, will become wise. And on and on. These beatitudes are exactly what you might read in the Bible, classics of wisdom literature. Today we could have blessed are those who... Eat well, get good nights of sleep, and um, exercise regularly, for they should have good health and a long life. Just sort of natural wisdom sayings about you'll be blessed if you do these regular ordinary things that everyone within this context, especially these religious contexts, would say, this is what pays, this is how a good life should be lived. But Jesus' beatitudes are not the expectations of piety. And they are opposite the expectations of the world. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are the people who have no spiritual resources left, for they will receive everything that God has to give. Really? Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Usually the meek get the short end of the stick. Neither are they completely out of line, though, with the story of Israel. You'll find versions of these in the Old Testament. Now, Craig Blumberg, I think, really nails it. He calls this inaugural eschatology. Jesus is announcing that God's right-side-up world is about to enter this upside-down world and start the process of making things right. Jesus is a new thing. Um, In Jesus, a new thing is beginning. It is hope to the crushed, wobbly Israel. Israel's hope has come near. This is exactly what he and John the Baptist have been saying. The kingdom of heaven is near. Simple piety is rewarded. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. It isn't out of line with God's promises to Israel, but it is out of line with Israel's experience with her piety, because Israel's had a rough time of things. Her devotion to God has gotten her vassal status and a diaspora in a vast pagan empire. This is the hope that the little person who hopes in God will not be forgotten by God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad, because great is your reward in heaven, for in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. What looks to the world like a losing hand in God's eschatological intervention will prove to be the greatest possible hope. It certainly isn't nature religion where you're expecting, well, outcomes for natural outcomes for natural good behavior, where natural outcomes um, of your choices are proven to clearly be clearly rewarded in the world. It seems more like escape religion because the payoff will come, well, after the breaking of this world order. But then he switches. You are the salt of the earth. He breaks the nature religion frame or the escape religion frame and seems to come out as nature religion. He talks about how the disciple of Jesus blesses the world with their sacrificial polity. This inaugurated eschatology, the end times have come near in us in the moment here and now. The tension between natural religion and escape religions are heightened. Now, aporia is sort of a breaking. And what Jesus wants to do before those who would be his disciples as they listen begin to consider what this strange man is saying and what he is asking of them, he needs to break their frames. He needs to incite in them a different way of thinking. And so he says these shocking, but yet, Beautiful things. These aren't simply things to shock us and sort of drive us into despair. These are things to give us hope in a world that doesn't seem to be offering much hope at all. John the Baptist was promising shock and awe. Is this it? Doesn't quite look like it. Jesus comes with what begins as a subtle hope that both makes university students mock and skeptics walk away. Could this man who raises no army nor assassinates a pagan warlord really bring the transformation of history and heaven's invasion? The aporia that Jesus set up in the the Sermon on the Mount becomes flesh in his crucifixion. The disciples are scattered, despondent. The poor in spirit get the Roman cross. The meek gets the business end of the stick. The merciful is shown no mercy. The peacemaker is brutally mocked and killed. Nature and escape religion come together as the resurrection and the ascension. The poor in spirit receives the kingdom. The meek inherits the earth. The merciful receives mercy. The peacemaker is recognized as the son of God. Now the beatitudes continue to be the entryway into the disturbing into disturbing the status quo of a world that knows how to brutally enforce its iron laws. It continues to give us hope that following Jesus, living his life, receiving his baptism, dying like he did will bring his resurrection. What should you do? You should go and follow. Amen.